let's get into what we're talking about today. Uh, this, at this point in Matthew's gospel is really the, probably the, the largest transition in the way that Jesus um, kind of presents himself to the public, to the masses. And um, he begins to do this by, uh, by way of parables. And today we're going to look at the parable of the sower, and then the rest of the chapter is the kingdom parables. <clears throat> and what happens at this juncture in Jesus' ministry is that Jesus is going to move away from being clear in his teaching to being obscure. He's going to give uh, gardening lessons uh, without any explanation for the multitudes. And uh, it's very interesting, but he has a purpose. Uh, from chapter uh, 5 through 12, Jesus had been publicly demonstrating uh, undeniably that he was the Messiah, okay? And his, the authority of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. He was fulfilling what we called sign miracles. He, we looked at those last week. But in spite of all of the undeniable evidence, the religious leaders of Israel had accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan, okay? And, and through that, we know they committed the <clears throat> unpardonable sin. The multitudes have become fickle. They're indecisive. Uh, the, some of them are beginning to be critical. Uh, some of them are leaning, of course, toward the side of the religious leaders. And uh, things are getting very, very different. So Jesus... He stops teaching the multitude with the clarity that he did before, and what he'll do is he will give an illustration that has relationship to nothing, to the crowds. He just throws an illustration out there, and uh, he doesn't explain himself. Very, very interesting. All this parables. Uh, now, parables, of course, are short stories, which uh, are intended to illustrate spiritual truths. But if you don't have an explanation, you just have gardening lessons. Okay, And uh, so why would Jesus do that? Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to find out who the true seekers are. And if somebody is a true seeker, what will they do? They'll seek. They'll ask. They'll inquire. And uh, <clears throat> so that's what's going to happen, and we'll see some of it immediately. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read uh, Matthew 13, 1 through 23. Uh, if standing that long is too difficult for you, feel free to, to sit down, okay? On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they were withered. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, <clears throat> Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. The hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorn is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the, ground, the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. <clears throat> and Lord, I pray that in my audience today that there are some seekers and they will perhaps even for the first time consider the gospel. I pray that as we talk about these things that they would come to a state of desperation, that they need your grace in the gospel. So Lord, may your truth be revealed. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would understand the nature of the gospel and that we would preach it. So help us, we pray. And Lord, again, I just thank you for Rusty and all that he meant to so many of us and touched the lives of so many people, always behind the scenes and out of sight, but doing things that no one else wanted to do. Always there for people, always loving, always showing mercy, compassion. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead and be seated. So before we begin, um, I'm not going to give much explanation at the beginning because I kind of want you to you know, have that sense of what the multitudes did. They got gardening lessons and then that's all Jesus said to them. He told them told what happens with seed when it falls on various soil. And that was it. That was it. What a letdown, yeah? <laughs> when we get further on, uh, we'll get into the, the, uh, the commentary about all this. So it's going to be light at the beginning. So let's, let's do some of that now. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him. You don't want to be fooled by a crowd. So that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So again, we have this curious but vacillating crowd. They've gathered to hear Jesus speak, or maybe they haven't. Maybe they have other motives. And Jesus does speak to them because his, his heart's desire is to draw out from among them the seekers, the people who, who want to be his disciple. Uh, and again, the Sea of Galilee, this is the large lake in northern Israel. Uh, Jesus lived in Capernaum. That's where he did the majority of all of his ministry. Uh, he, of course, in John's gospel, we have him in Jerusalem uh, a lot, but uh, that makes up a very small amount of his time. Most of it was spent in the north. <clears throat> so he's in this fishing boat. He begins to speak to the multitude. Then he spoke 
many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. So Jesus has much to say, but as we said, not, not in plain language. He wants them to hear and understand, but what he really wants is for them to want to hear and for them to want to understand. That's what this whole thing is about. But Jesus, he does use stories that, of course, they're familiar to the people. The locals in the area consisted of fishers, mostly, and farmers. And uh, so the parables come out of that world. Some are barred from other realities, but all common, everything relatable to the people, though not readily understood because no explanation is given. So the parable of the sower is given to the crowd. The sower goes out to cast seed. It falls on four different soils. Uh, the wayside, the stony places, uh, thorny ground, and then good ground. Okay? The seed that fell on the wayside were eaten by birds. The seed that fell on stony ground was scorched by the sun and withered. The seed that fell among the thorns was choked out by the thorns. And then there was the seed that fell on good ground, ground that was actually prepared for seed. And it, of course, yielded a crop, some of a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now, if you have heard sermons about the parable of the sower before. Uh, There's this typical examination of all the soil and how it relates to people. I'm actually not going to do that this morning, okay? I'm going to talk about how we can perhaps partner with the Holy Spirit to get the soil ready for the seed. We'll go through all of the the soils, but I'm going to uh, add how we can perhaps prepare people better for it. But then after this, Jesus After he gives the parable, he concludes this way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's the parable. Who wants to know the answer to it? Who wants to know what it relates to? Uh, Because here at this point, there's no explanation. Just states the obvious regard to what happens when seed falls on good ground, falls on bad ground, and so forth. But who cares? I think what is happening at this point, without explanation, It's Jesus is discovering who wants to be there just because they want to see another miracle. Who wants to be there just because uh, they'd like to see Jesus debate with the Pharisees. Some people, perhaps, I mean, nobody else is working, so I can get a day off too and just go listen to Jesus. But the parable is meant to distinguish who's who in the crowd. Those who had ears, they would come to Jesus. And so the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, why did you just do that? So they're curious. Why did you just give them gardening lessons and then stop? That's not characteristic of anything that you've done before. Everything else has been teaching, illustration, teaching, illustration, teaching, illustration. This time it was just illustration. Nobody knows anything at this point. Why change from clarity to obscurity? Okay, before we move on, it's important to say that when we say the disciples came to him, this isn't just 12 men, right? Uh, we know there's at least 70 other men, but then there's many women that followed him. So we would, there's probably a few hundred people that were Jesus' disciples, but they're actually the minority among the disciples, or among those that are, are following him. So many are following him. And so Jesus answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them... It has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he, who will have abun- and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So the disciples who have responded to Jesus' teaching with faith, not 
a perfect faith, but enough faith to open their eyes, enough to give them this trajectory to move closer to him, these things will be unfolded to them. In verse 11, Jesus uses the word mystery, uh, the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, he doesn't use the word the way that we use it today. When we think of a mystery, we think of like a murder mystery. Something has happened and we're trying to figure out all the details that led up to it, who's guilty and the rest. But the Greeks didn't use it that way. Uh, They used it to talk about something that God had hidden in the past. Nobody knew about it, didn't know that there was a mystery. And then at one point in history, he decided to reveal it. That's a mystery, something that was hidden by God in the past, but he is now presently revealing it. And in the text, it's those who are seekers, those who believe. Those things are revealed to them. But those who do not, it doesn't matter what Jesus says, they will not have this thing revealed to them because they're not seekers. Remember, Jesus said, do not cast your pearls to pigs, lest they turn on you and devour you. I think that's a good word for us in the context of the gospel. Uh, Pigs only get parables. If people are not seekers, if there's no evidence that they're interested, uh, if they balk at you, if they push you away, um, maybe they just get parables, okay? But seekers, they're the ones that learn the mysteries, He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and you shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. The prophecy comes out of Isaiah chapter six, verse nine through 10. Now up to this point, Jesus has talked many times about prophecies that have been fulfilled. But here he he makes an adjustment to the word. He adds a prefix to it. Anna is the word, anaplero. Typically, he says plero. But now he says anaplero, which emphasizes the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's saying that the deafness, the hardness, the obstinance of these people and the Pharisees has emphatically solidified the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's talking about something dangerous now. Their hardness, their resistance, their rejection, this is, this is fulfilled. They're on dangerous ground because of this. The prophecy of Isaiah continues, says, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. God desires to, but they have hardened themselves Jesus has reached out to all of them, but none of them have reciprocated his embrace. They don't want to understand. So Jesus, as the gentleman he is, he does not force the issue. He says to these guys, he says, but blessed, that is happy, are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, they may not fully understand this at that moment, but imagine Isaiah, who is the great messianic prophet. Uh, Don't you imagine that he wanted to actually see with his eyes and hear from the Messiah himself, all of the other prophets, Daniel and the rest? They, They wanted to experience the things they were prophesying about. Later on, John the apostle, he wrote about the privilege that he got to experience Uh, late in the first century, and he wrote 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, 
and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. First John 1, 1 through 4. Blessed are your eyes and your ears, Jesus said, for they have seen and heard. So, now that no explanation has been given, Jesus is going to provide it. Now, as I said before, uh, typically, uh, when you hear sermons about the sower, uh, there's all this evaluation about the soil itself. We will look over some of that. But uh, what I want to do is talk about, as I said, partnering with the Holy Spirit so that we might help prepare the soil. And the reason I want to do that, uh, partially because I think it's our responsibility, but because I think most gospel preaching today is garbage. If I could just put it out there like that, it's junk. And I don't believe it saves. And if it brings people into the church, it brings them in as false converts. And uh, so I'm probably going to say some things that may surprise you. Uh, Maybe you won't be surprised by that because you've been here long enough. Um, But I'm going to give you uh, the gospel as it comes to us in the book of Acts and and in the rest of the gospel, the, the narratives. So I just want to say that up front. And if you have questions or comments, uh, please come and chat with me afterward and um, we can talk about it. So he says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So he invites him, now come and hear the parable. Well, they've already heard it. But now he wants them to understand it, as as the word can mean as well. So Jesus' interpretation. Real quick, you need to know that uh, as he explains some of this, some of it is happening in his audience, but some of what he says, it's too early for it to be happening. So Jesus is talking about what will happen in the future when other people are preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? He's addressing what's happening now and all the things that will happen in the future. The seed that is sown is the word. It's the message of the kingdom. It's, as Luke says, it's the gospel of the kingdom. We'll just say the gospel. Jesus came preaching the good news that God was at this point in history, he was receiving sinners into his kingdom through repentance and faith in his son, Jesus, who would bear their sin and their guilt at Calvary. Now, this message, different people hear the gospel in different ways, or upon different kinds of soil, as it were. So the seed represents the gospel, and the soil represents the heart of man. And the question is, what is the condition of the heart when it hears the gospel? You know, the only way to discover that is to preach. That's the only way to know what you're dealing with. In this parable, we said there's already four different kinds of soil. This one is the wayside, the first batch. Now, the wayside, of course, is the path. It's the part of the field or the garden that hasn't been tilled up. It hasn't been cultivated to receive seed. This has been trampled down where people walk. This kind of soil represents the person who hears the gospel but doesn't understand it. Now, this begs the question, why didn't they understand the message? Was it the fault of the hearer or was it the fault of the messenger? 
Well, currently in the context, Jesus is the messenger, so we're going to be safe and just say it was the fault of the hearer. Amen? But later on, and throughout history, as the gospel has been preached, whose fault is it? Is it the hearer or is it the messenger? Why might people not understand when we preach the gospel? Of course, Jesus didn't say that the hearer didn't want to hear, and so they didn't understand. He didn't say that the hearer wasn't intelligent enough to not understand the message. The gospel is understandable. A child can, can grasp the message. So why do some not understand? Well, I think you, I'm familiar with what the Bible says, the effects of sin are on the sinful mind. That sin blinds, okay, it darkens the mind. But, you know, even the most evil person can understand the, the message of the gospel. Now, they're not hip to it. They don't, they don't receive it necessarily, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and 2. But that's different than not being able to understand it. So why don't people understand the gospel? So there's, again, there's many theological answers for why sinners are to blame for not understanding the gospel. But I'm not sure they're helpful. It's, it has merit theologically, but on the ground, I don't think it's any good. In spite of the, the barriers caused by the unbelieving mind, I believe there's something that should concern us more than how the believer is to blame. It's always easy to blame them, right? Uh, but I think there's a plank in our eye uh, when it comes to communicating the gospel. We, we should concern ourselves with the clarity that we provide when we deliver the message of the gospel so that it can be understood. Who wants to be the barrier between the sinner and God. We don't, okay? If we fail to be clear, we can't expect the unregenerate to comprehend the message, and we don't want to be the reason they don't understand. Biblically, it's our duty, it's our moral responsibility to present the gospel as clearly as possible. People's lives literally depend on our preaching. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 10? How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and the rest. Now, over the years, I've heard thousands of people share the gospel, and I've heard some, some whoppers, okay? Where the only thing that is sowed to the unbeliever is confusion, is confusion, and that's bad. So the clarity of our message is essential. Other than ignorance, I think the biggest reason that well-intended people miscommunicate the gospel is fear. Now, a lot of people don't share the gospel at all because they're afraid. But that's not the case with, any, with everyone. Many people who do share the gospel lack clarity because they omit things from the gospel. Now, fear of rejection and what people think is always a factor. But some of this fear has to do with sharing some of the harder details, truths contained in the gospel that admittedly they are scary to say to people. But it's those things that make the gospel make sense. Many evangelists and preachers are amiss when they omit some of these more difficult truths. And I would argue that when they omit them, they haven't preached the gospel at all. They haven't. And I believe they omit these truths because they're afraid to lose people. Because in, in, in evangelistic circles, it's all about the numbers that you draw, right? We call it evangelistically speaking, because none of them tell the truth about how many were saved. And I think it's, it's a lie. It's ridiculous, okay? But you see, the gospel is a thing, and that thing is not for us to define. It's not for us to manipulate or alter. It's God's gospel, and it should be preached accurately and faithfully as it was given to us in the scriptures. So it's important to say, you know, success is not measured by the number of decisions you get for Christ. As I said last week, 
that would make Jeremiah a failure, correct? No converts. Success is measured by faithfully preaching the message that was delivered to us in the scriptures. And that's a pretty simple message, but it's not always fun to preach. There are dangers associated with preaching the gospel as we find it in the scriptures. After all, you know somebody that got crucified for it. The disciples were persecuted and mistreated because of it. What are the hard truths? Well, the gospel is necessary for one reason. One reason. Man is a sinner. And he, she deserves to be eternally separated from the God that they offended. And the only way to escape the justice we deserve is to turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ who was punished for all of our transgressions at Calvary. Communicating to someone they are sinful and in danger of God's justice, is, it's not very comfortable to share. People are afraid to do it. I experience probably many different levels of fear when I do it. And it's, it's never the highlight of my day. And so because of fear, what we do is we dilute the truth of the message in order to make preaching easier on us. But as a result, we make it easier for Satan to snatch the truth from them as the parable goes. We might have made it easy on us, but we made it more difficult for the sinner. When we examine how the apostles of Jesus preached the gospel in the book of Acts, I think that modern Christians, especially Western Christians, discover something very, very interesting, okay? They, in their preaching, communicated to their unbelieving, often hostile audience, the sinfulness of their sin. It wasn't a generalization of sin. It was, you murdered the prince of life. They said that to the religious leaders. They accused them of murder. You're not just sinful. You're, you're exceedingly sinful. And then they communicated their need for repentance, and they communicated the dangers they faced because of the judgment to come. They communicated Jesus' atoning death and his justifying resurrection, which is two sides of the same coin. And they communicated their need to trust in Jesus for forgiveness in order to escape the judgment to come. There really are five things there, and they're either stated implicitly or emphatically in every sermon in the book of Acts. Why do you think the apostles preached that way? Because they watched Jesus preach that way. And then Jesus taught them to preach that way. From the scriptures, we learn that the preaching of the gospel addresses sin, repentance, judgment to come, the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, and faith in him for salvation. And whenever I say that, people say, Ben, there's something, om- there's om- something omitted from your gospel. You left out God's love for the sinner. I've heard it many times. And you've heard it said that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But that was never preached by Jesus and the apostles. Not only is the word love never used by the apostles when preaching the gospel, the word is never once used in the book of Acts. Never, not even in passing. It is true that God loves the sinner, but addressing God's love for the sinner in gospel preaching was never a way to motivate sinners to come to Christ. You guys, sinners are rebels. They're hostiles to the kingdom of heaven. They're like the Taliban. And there's, there's no agreement until there's a surrender of arms, until there's brokenness and repentance and contrition. That part about God having a wonderful plan for your life is a Western construct. It's not in the scriptures. And unless the statement is highly qualified, it is very deceptive to the sinner. I'll give you an example. After Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake, Acts 9.19. And indeed, from that day forward, Paul suffered greatly until he was beheaded. 
And as we know, all of the apostles but John were murdered for the faith. So as long as you tell them that God's wonderful plan for their life could be a life filled with suffering, beating, scourgings, loss, abandonment, and beheading, you've told them the truth. Okay. God's love for humanity, though it is deep and rich, it's unfathomable, but it has never dangled in front of the sinner to motivate him to come to God, not once. And it's true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But understand, that's talking about God's motive to come to us. It's not being used as a motive for us to come to him. Let's use the scriptures correctly, okay? We should be most cautious about this. If Christ did not preach that way, and if the apostles didn't preach that way, if, if Christ and the apostles didn't teach us to preach that way, we should not preach that way. We should be faithful to the word of God and the example that has been handed down to us. That's true. We're commanded to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, Matthew 22, 39. And this is my position. Love your neighbor by preaching the gospel to him. Trying to save a sinner from the judgment to come is the most loving thing that you can do for the lost. It is the ultimate expression of love for the sinner. If we fail to preach the gospel as it is found in the Bible, you guys, we've just failed to preach the gospel. And if the unbeliever hears a gospel not found in the scriptures, they will not understand the only gospel that saves. And their failure to understand the gospel will be no fault of their own. But this is a double-edged sword. Not only will the unbeliever remain in the danger they are in, the preacher will be in danger of what Paul warns in Galatians 1. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Does that sound serious? Anathema? As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You know, I, I did say that the gospel is a thing, and we should be careful and faithful when we share it. You know, don't concern yourself with what the sinner thinks about you. You won't have to answer to them. Concern yourself with what he thinks about the gospel and that he understands it. Preach it with authority. Preach it persuasively, but preach it with clarity and then leave it in their court. Like Peter, with, with fear, humility, address their sin and be specific. And with authority, tell them that God demands that everyone turn from their sin because he's appointed a day in which he will judge them according to what is right. Tell them that Jesus, the Son of God, was punished on the cross for their sins and that he rose from the dead to offer them salvation and they can receive his salvation by trusting Christ who forgives and he grants eternal life. It's pretty simple. Preach it because Paul says that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But you need to know the gospel yourself so that you can preach it with clarity so the unbeliever can understand and be saved. If the believer, or rather the unbeliever, refuses to process the truth of the gospel, it's on them. Amen? It's out of our hands. And we can do as Jesus did. We can let them go. And he did many times. Let's move on. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So the gospel was received with joy, but the roots of the gospel weren't deeply embedded in their heart. And so when tribulation and persecution come, the word was easily plucked out of the shallow soil, and they stumble. This is interesting. Why would they stumble over persecution when other people become more faithful 
when they experience tribulation and persecution. Why does one stumble because of trials and another thrives in the face of trials? Well, I, I can probably guess theologically why the unbeliever is to blame, but I know of one sure reason why preachers are to blame, by providing false motives to the unbeliever. Again, because of messages like, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, people are disillusioned when they experience the opposite kind of life that was promised to them. When people hear the, the, the prosperity gospel that they'll be healthy and wealthy if they come to Jesus, but instead suffer loss of their material goods or they suffer from medical issues, they stumble. They stumble because they were fed a lie. All kinds of benefits were offered to the sinner to motivate them to come to Christ. So no wonder they received it with joy. The preacher appealed to their selfish nature to motivate them, but the benefits were bogus. When people come for selfish reasons, there's no depth to their faith. Their faith is rooted in the shallowness of their own character. and It's easy to pluck it out. Modern gospel preaching has been polluted by a number of man-centered ideas, and many preachers give these as motives for people to come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. That's true if all parties obey the word. If you come to Jesus, he'll fix your alcohol and drug problem. It's true if you repent and exercise self-control. If you come to Jesus, he'll make you rich. That's true if he sovereignly decides to do that for his own purposes. But there is no such promise in the new covenant. If you come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy. Unless he doesn't, there's no such promise in the New Testament. The masses have been told that the gospel is really about them, their well-being, their happiness, their comfort, their health, and their wealth. And so for selfish, carnal reasons, they make a profession of faith. They receive the word with joy, but when the promises fall to the ground, they stumble in disillusionment, disillusionment and unbelief. You guys, the responsible preacher who is concerned about the truth will inform his audience about the dangers they may face if they come to Jesus as they inform them about the dangers they'll face eternally if they do not. You remember the man that came to Jesus, super excited. He says, I'm ready to follow you everywhere. And what did Jesus say? All right, let's go. No, he says, I want you to know there's a level of sacrifice. You will be homeless. You'll sleep under the stars, right? He told his disciples that they would be persecuted and many would be killed for his name. Your own family members will turn you over to the authorities. You would be hated and be reviled by many. Jesus didn't hide those things, but you can't even find those in the small print of most ministries today. Usually what you see is a a pastor's face with a big smile on it. I think it's gross, personally. Even in our religious institutions, like our seminaries and Bible colleges, the gospel is being diluted to a bunch of nonsense, and that nonsense has been passed on to the students. Those students become the pastors of our churches, and then they pass on that nonsense, and those trained under them then go out into the world and they preach this so-called gospel. And what they do is if people come to their churches, they're false converts. And then as soon as trouble comes or temptation comes, they fall away. You guys, we can't cheat the sinner. Tell them that it's hard being a Christian, that we face many sorrows and troubles. Tell them that our moral standard is unparalleled in the universe. But through the grace of God, when he saves us, he grants us his grace to walk according to his word. It's infinitely safer than the alternative. It's definitely worth it and nothing compares to Jesus. You guys, when you preach the gospel, tell people what they're in. Be honest. Has your experience just been a bed of roses? I don't think so. Life is hard. 
Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So this person entertains the gospel, perhaps for what it really is, but their love for the things of the world and this lie about what riches can secure chokes out the gospel and this person is unfruitful. Instead of pursuing Christ and being satisfied by him, they, they give all of their energy to finding fulfillment in worldly pursuits, specifically what they think that wealth can provide. The problem here is they fail to experience Jesus as he really is. And when people fail to experience Christ, they'll look elsewhere for, elsewhere for, for satisfaction. And as you know, the world is always there to receive them, to give them their carnal appetites. These are the people that always break our hearts. Amen. We preach to them. There's signs of life and then they fall away. Yeah. Like Demas, they love the things of the world more and the world choked them out. They haven't become like Paul who said, I've counted everything loss for the excellence of knowing Christ and consider all of it rubbish, only that I might know him. Jesus said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We don't want to forget that you know, our flesh is only attracted to the things of the world. Paul says in Romans 8 that it despises God and his word. We want to preach truthfully and persuasively, praying that the sinner hears, understands, and truly repents and believes. You know, preach that the benefits of Christ infinitely outshine the passing pleasures of the world, which only lead to death. Our message should make them think twice about turning back to the hidden dangers that are in the world. The world is dangerous, dangerous, deadly to the soul. So preach. But he who receives seed on the ground, on good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it and, in, and who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. What made the soil good? What made the soil good? Jesus says they heard and they understood. Understood what? Well, by the truths of the gospel, they understood their desperate need for Christ because they were sinful, and without him they would perish forever. That's, that's the best. Mark's account says that they accepted it, they received it into themselves. Luke says they heard the word and they kept it. Why? I believe that when, they, when, when we present the gospel as the apostles did, I believe we're partnering with the Holy Spirit, who then tills up the soil of the sinful heart in order to get it ready to receive the seed of the gospel. When people have to consider their sin in light of God's justice, when people are confronted with God's moral law, it brings the knowledge of their sin and makes them guilty before God, Romans 3, 19 through 20. God's moral standard confronts the heart and it tills it into a place of humility and it prepares it for seed. This state of brokenness over sin, you guys, this is a state of blessedness. Blessedness, because with it is both a necessity for the gospel and a desire for it. You make the person hungry for it. When I share the gospel with people and I put the weight of God's moral standard upon them, I'm waiting for this recognition of sin. I'm waiting for them to experience the guilt of their sin. I'm waiting for brokenness. And if I get it, then they're ready for the rest of the gospel. If I don't, I might say, it was nice to meet you. Have a nice day. Because Jesus said, don't throw your pearls to swine. The heart is hard, and if it hasn't been softened, you'll get nowhere. Let me close with this. 
The great Edinburgh street preacher Robert Flockhart would compare the gospel of Christ to a silken thread. And the moral law of God as a sharp needle that makes a way for the gospel to penetrate the hard heart of the sinner. Using Flockhart's illustration, Charles Spurgeon said this. As I told First Service, you always have to hold on when, when Spurgeon speaks. He says, open up the spirituality of the law as our Lord did and show how it is broken by evil thoughts, intentions, and imaginations. By this means, many sinners will be pricked in their hearts. Old Robbie Flockhart used to say, it is of no use trying to sew with the silken thread of the gospel unless we pierce away for it with the sharp needle of the law. The law goes first, like the needle, and draws the gospel thread after it. Therefore, preach concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Let such language as that of the 51st Psalm be explained. Show that God requires truth in the inward parts, and that purging with sacrificial blood is absolutely needful. Aim at the heart, probe the wound, and touch the very quick of the soul. Spare not the sterner themes, for men must be wounded before they can be healed, and slain before they can be made alive. No man will ever put on the robe of Christ's righteousness till he is stripped of his fig leaves, nor will he wash in the fount of mercy till he perceives his own filthiness. Therefore, my brethren, we must not cease to declare the law. It demands its, wreck, its threatenings and the sinner's multiple breaches of it. Why would Spurgeon talk like that? Because of apostolic preaching. That's why. An example of it, when Paul was in Athens, the philosophers called him a seed picker. They were insulting him. But in spite of their insults, he stood on Mars Hill before some of the, the greatest minds of his day, and he rebuked them for their many idolatries and called them to repentance before God judged them according to what is right. He was a mighty sower of seed. He was no seed picker. Okay. You guys, don't be afraid to preach like Paul. If you do, you're more likely to make converts who are fruitful for the glory of God. Preach the word. Be faithful to it partner with the Spirit, and maybe you'll be pleased with what you find. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, I pray that not only would you give us courage to preach the word to the unbelieving, but as Peter says, that we would do it with fear and we would do it with humility. And Lord, I pray that as we use strong language to communicate the hard truths, Lord, that in that our love for the sinner would come across that we could express to them that we're trying to spare them from danger, that we want them to experience forgiveness in Christ. We want them to have eternal life. But Lord, help us to be clear. Help us to preach with authority, the authority that you've given us. But help us not to back down. Help us to be fearless, we pray. Lord, thank you for my church family. I pray that you would just continue to equip them. And Lord, that they would be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.